everyone in the world could be, in a very broad sense, divided up into one of three categories. And those categories are theism, agnosticism, and atheism. The, the theist is, is somebody who believes in a god or perhaps multiple gods. And on the other side of the spectrum, sort of the opposite of that is the atheist, somebody who says there is no god. And in the middle, you have this really broad category, somebody who is undecided, they're agnostic. And there could be a lot of reasons why somebody might be agnostic. They, they might have uh, looked at the evidence one way or the other and, and just feel that there's no evidence that's compelling enough to, to believe one way or the other. It could be somebody is, is religious or believes in a God and, and becomes cynical and stops believing, or the opposite could be true. They could also have been an atheist and, and lose their faith in atheism as well. But for our purposes in this class, we really want to sort of eliminate this middle category. And we really care about these two categories that, that are on either side of the spectrum. And when we talk about somebody who's a theist, I think for our purpose tonight, we want to, we want to narrow that down and, and talk about somebody who is religious. Because you could have somebody who's a theist, who believes in a god or multiple gods, but is not particularly religious. An example of this is somebody who would call themselves a deist. A deist is somebody who, who believes in a God, but they don't believe any, any special revelation of that God, and, and so they don't worship a God. So we're, we're not talking about that tonight. When we talk about theists, let's think about Christians. And even more specifically, let's think about ourselves. Let's think about Christadelphians. And there's actually a very strong common bond between theists and atheists that, that many people may not have thought about. And to illustrate that, let me, let me explain another philosophy for somebody perhaps who might be an agnostic who doesn't believe one way or the other. We often talk about postmodernism. And at the heart of a postmodern philosophy is the idea that there's no absolute truth or no universal truth. And so you can have what is truth to you and I can have what is truth to me and because there is no overarching absolute or universal truth, our truths can be opposed to each other, but they, they remain truth to us. There's only truth for the individual. Well, the Christadelphian rejects that idea. We believe in absolute truth, and so does the atheist. The atheist also cares an awful lot about truth. And this is the common bond between a theist or a Christadelphian and an atheist. We both are willing to make an absolute statement we say either there is a God or there is no God. And that belief in and search for the truth is, is really a bond that, that perhaps we don't realize, but, but ties the two uh, philosophies or mindsets together so that you might commonly find, if, if you look at history, you might have a famous religious person, a famous Christian who loses their faith. They don't just become agnostic. They jump right over to the other side and become an atheist because they still believe in absolute truth. And by the same token, you'll see people who are atheists jump over the fence and become theists because they suddenly believe that there is compelling evidence for a God. And our title tonight is really a parody. The Atheist Delusion is a parody of a book that was published in the year 2007. And you see it on the screen. Some of you may have heard of this book, The God Delusion, published by Professor Richard Dawkins, who is probably the most famous person famous for being an atheist in the world today. 
Professor Richard Dawkins, or I think he's retired now, so he's a, an uh, emeritus professor at Oxford University. And he published this book, The God Delusion, in 2007. When it came out, it, it was very popular in many circles, but very polarizing, of course, depending on what your worldview is, whether you believe in a God or you don't believe in a God. And Richard Dawkins falls under the category of somebody who we would call a new atheist. So a new atheists are a category of atheists that, that sort of distinguish themselves by being aggressive, militant in the way that they actually attack religion. So they're not content just to not believe in a God. They actually think that religion is bad. And, and so they're doing their part to, to try to get rid of religion and attack anybody who, who is religious. And that's what this book, The God Delusion, is all about. And if you were to read The God Delusion, you'd find about six main themes that, that run throughout the book. And these are not chapter headings or subtitles, but they are the main themes you find throughout the book. These are the types of things that Richard Dawkins is, is saying, the arguments that he's making. First, that faith, by definition, is blind, but that science is based on evidence. That science supports atheism and not Christianity. That design is dead. Otherwise, you have to explain who designed the designer. So the point is, if you believe in a designer, then you have to answer the question, well, who designed that designer? That religion is dangerous. That nobody needs God to be moral. And for a time in the UK, there was an atheist campaign where you could see on the sides of buses a slogan. And the slogan was, good without God. And you, you'd see a famous person's face, and that person was an atheist, and it would say, so-and-so is good without God. And finally, Richard Dawkins contends that, that the Christian claims about the person of Jesus are not true, that his miracles violate the very laws of nature. Now, this class tonight is actually just the beginning of, of a series of classes. And in that series of classes, we would tackle almost all of these claims that you find in the God delusion. Um, we're only going to look at a couple of them in this class tonight, but we're going to begin at the beginning. That point number one that you see on the screen, that faith by definition is blind, but that science is based on evidence. And I mentioned to you that Richard Dawkins is like, like other new atheists, is sort of aggressive and militant in the way he talks about religion. Here's an example of that. Here's something that he wrote in 1997 in a publication called The Humanist when he's talking about faith. He said, it is fashionable to wax apocalyptic about the threat to humanity posed by the AIDS virus, mad cow disease, and many others. But I think a case can be made that faith is one of the world's great evils comparable to the smallpox virus but harder to eradicate. Now, I think this is only the second time I've given this class in the COVID era, but I think this quote has even more power for us today than it did before the year 2020, because Richard Dawkins is saying that faith is so bad, it's comparable to a virus that might kill thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of people. That's how bad he thinks faith or specifically religious faith is. And he goes on to say, faith being belief that isn't based on evidence is the principal vice of any religion. Now, what you would find if you look at the writings and the interviews with Richard Dawkins is that 
when he starts to talk about religion, you start to realize, especially as somebody who knows your Bible, somebody who is a religious person, that he's really sort of out of his depth when he starts to get into the field of theology. When he talks about religion, he doesn't really know what he's talking about because he's not a theologian. And right here, he defines faith in a way that we would not define faith. He says the definition of faith is belief that is not based on evidence. That is not our definition of faith. That is not a biblical definition of faith. We have a term for that. We would call that blind faith. But he simply calls that religious faith, faith that doesn't have any evidence to support it. And that is just not correct at all. And what I'd like to play for you right now is a video clip from a debate that took place in 2007. So I mentioned that in 2007, the, the book, The God Delusion was published. And later that same year, there was a debate in Birmingham, Alabama, between Richard Dawkins and another man named John Lennox. John Lennox is actually a colleague of, of Richard Dawkins, also a professor at Oxford University. He's a professor of mathematics and a historian of science. And he also happens to be a Christian apologist, which means he spends his time defending the Christian religion. And in 2007, these two men met in, in Birmingham, Alabama to debate. And the subject of their debate was the book that Richard Dawkins had just published, The God Delusion. And I'm just going to play you a two minute clip from the beginning of that debate. I hope that it works because I've tried this before over Zoom and it didn't work so well. So if it doesn't work, we'll skip through it. But hopefully the sound works okay, even if the video is not great. And in this part of the debate, the two men are de debating the definition of and the nature of faith. Here it is. This, this song. Um, when you say faith is rational and evidence-based, I mean, if that were true, it wouldn't need to be faith, would it? I mean, if there, if there were evidence for it, uh, why would you need to call it faith? You'd say just evidence. And when you said that, we, that, that faith in relativity, in, in Einstein's theory of, of, of relativity, is, is evidence-based, that, of course, it is. But um, the, the, the evidence is, is all important. I mean, Einstein's predictions fit in with... Um, with uh, uh, observed fact and, they, and with a whole body of theory. Whereas we only need to use the word faith when there isn't any evidence. I presume you've got faith in your wife. Is there any evidence for that? Or yes, plenty. Yes. Plenty of evidence. Um, mm. I... <laughs> Let's generalize it. Never mind about my wife. Let's generalize it. It's the same goodbye, Richard. It's the same goodbye. Let's say, let's say that in general, how do we know that somebody loves us? Okay. Yes. Um, you can use a word faith for that if you like, but it's not the, it's not a, the right use of the word because oh, it is. because you you know why you know your wife loves you because of all sorts of little signs, little catches in the voice, little mm. little looks in the eye. Um, that's the evidence. That it, yes, that's that's evidence. That's perfectly good evidence. That's not faith. Yes, it is. Well, okay, then, then we, we're coming down to pure, to pure semantics. Um, I think you've been influenced too much by Kant, you see. Uh, well, who, not explicitly, I have to say. Um, let, okay, let's, let, let, let's go on. Um, which, of these, which of these statements are we now on? Are we're we on the second for opening. <laughs> so you can see in that part of the debate, 
uh, in my opinion, at least uh, Richard Dawkins really loses that part of the debate on the discussion of, of what faith really means, the definition of faith. His answer in the end is kind of a cop out because he says, well, it just comes down to pure semantics, which means it comes down to the definition of the word, which of course it does. That's exactly what they're debating. The definition of the word faith does demand that there be evidence involved, especially when you're talking about biblical faith. And if you're if you found that interesting at all, I'd encourage you to go. You can find that debate online. I think it's about an hour and watch the whole thing. The whole debate is far from one sided, even though I, I don't think Richard Dawkins did very well in that part. But I'd like you to turn with me to a, a Bible passage, and I bet you can guess where we're going. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, and, and this is, of course, the famous chapter in the Bible about faith. And I'm going to start reading to you from verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 11. I'll be reading from the ESV. Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Now, I was reading from the ESV. Some of you are probably reading from the King James Version of the Bible. And, and for myself, maybe for many of you, this was a memory verse for me at some point or other when I was in Sunday school. And in the King James, in the second part of the verse, it says that faith is the evidence of things not seen, which, which is a pretty good translation of the Greek word. The Greek word there is the word alechos. It means a proof or a test, literally the act of presenting evidence for the truth of something. And in the very biblical definition of the word faith, we have evidence inextricably tied to that definition. I'd like you to turn over a few pages back with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, we're reading the words of the Apostle Paul. And I'm going to start in, in Romans chapter 1 at verse 16. And Paul writes there, Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. And in verse 20, the Apostle Paul writes that the invisible attributes of God can be seen in the things that he has created. Now, if you were to ask me, what is science? One reasonable answer to that question would be that science is, is the observation of nature. It's the process of observing and cataloging what we find in nature. And so we could probably paraphrase Paul in this verse and say that through science, we can see the stamp of our creator. We should expect to see that. And yet, for some reason, there is a narrative that has been passed down to us today. And the narrative goes something like this, that science and religion are at odds with each other. 
And you cannot have both. It's one or the other. It's a battle. And you have to pick one. But they don't live in harmony together. And in Romans chapter 1 and verse 20, we find that we should expect the opposite of that. That science should inform us about God. We should see the stamp of our creator when we look at the world around us. At the smallest subatomic level and in the grand uh, level in terms of the, the, the astronomy and, and the universe that we look at. In the big picture, the macro picture. So I'd like you to participate in a, in a little mental exercise with me. Imagine that in the middle of a jungle somewhere, in the middle of nowhere, somebody left a brand new Ford truck and they took off. And nearby there's a tribe of aboriginals and this tribe has no idea that any other human beings exist. They're, they're very primitive and they stumble upon this truck. It's incredible. It's like nothing they've ever seen before. And let's imagine that whoever left it there left it with a tank full of gas and the keys and the ignition so, so that after they play around with it for a while, they're able to turn it on and even drive it. They can't explain it. There's nothing else like it in their world. What do they say? What do they do now? Well, I imagine they do what many, many ancient societies did. And they'll say, it's magic. And they'll say, it's a god. And they'll worship the truck as a god. And on the front of the truck are the letters F-O-R-D, but of course in a language that they don't understand. And so this truck, they worship it, it's Ford the God. But let's imagine that over time, they're able to reverse engineer the truck. They can take it apart, figure out how it works, even put it back together, maybe even build a new one. They, they can explain all of the mechanics behind how the truck works. They completely figure it out. What do they do now? Well, they've taken, a, taken it apart all the way to the smallest piece and found that there was no God inside. So not only do they say this truck is not a God, they say this truck didn't have a designer. It didn't have a creator because we can explain how it works and we can build a new one. Now you and I know that's ridiculous because we have prior knowledge. We know that probably a, a team of engineers somewhere at Ford designed this truck. And to us, it's ridiculous to think that, that something like this, clearly created with a purpose in mind, created with precision, would, would just randomly happen, would not have a creator, would not have a mind behind it. That seems ridiculous to us, but you see where I'm going here because that's exactly what atheists have done when they look at the universe. The more we discover about the universe, the more we learn, the longer we spend looking at it, the more we can explain about it. We can explain the mechanics about so much of how the universe works. And so atheists say, because we can explain the mechanics of how the universe works, there's no need for a creator. When those two things have nothing to do with each other, just because you might be able to explain the mechanics of how creation works does not mean that it didn't have a creator. In fact, the opposite is more likely true. The very fact that we have minds that are able to comprehend something suggests that there was another mind, perhaps a much greater one, that created everything around us and that created us. And yet we've been passed down this message that science and religion are at odds with each other. In fact, the phrase that you might hear sometimes is science versus religion. And just by saying it that way, it's framing the narrative in a way that suggests that these two 
cannot live in harmony together. You have to pick one. And I think that this has been happening and this all started, this message that's come down to us, it comes to us from perhaps a debate that took place in the year 1860. In 1860, Charles Darwin published his work on the origin of the species and the theory of evolution was born. And later that same year, in a crowded hall in Oxford's Museum of Natural History, a debate took place between two men. Those two men were on your left, Reverend Samuel Wilberforce, known as Soapy Sam, uh, perhaps because he was, he was considered to be one of the best public speakers of his day, but also not well-liked because apparently he was pretty pretentious, so he was called Soapy Sam. On your right, you have Thomas Henry Huxley, also known as Darwin's Bulldog. And these two men would debate the merits of the very new, at this time, theory of evolution. And interestingly, T.H. Huxley, himself a scientist, really did not want to participate in this debate, but many of his scientific colleagues, who were themselves atheists, peer pressured him into participating in this debate. And there's no transcript of what was said at the debate. And the only exchange that all eyewitnesses that were there agree on is this one, when Samuel Wilberforce said to T.H. Huxley, is it from your grandfather or your grandmother that you claim descent from a monkey? And T.H. Huxley, clearly upset, stood up red-faced, but composed himself and responded, I would not be ashamed to have a monkey as an ancestor, but I would be ashamed to be connected with a man who used his great gifts to obscure the truth. And apparently that comment had such an impact on the audience that, that one woman fainted and had to be carried out. No major newspapers picked up this debate, but apparently both men thought that they had won the debate. The next day, T.H. Huxley wrote, I believe that I was the most popular man in Oxford for a full four and 20 hours afterwards. But Samuel Wilberforce wrote, I think I thoroughly beat him. Now, for some reason, this debate has come down to us through history as the first great defeat of religion by science. But the facts say otherwise, because all of the evidence that we have would suggest that there was, this was a very evenly matched debate. And while no newspapers, no major newspapers picked it up, there was one small publication called the Athenaeum that did it was very short, but it said that these two men, Huxley and Wilberforce, have each found foemen worthy of their steel, which is to say in modern English that this was a pretty evenly matched debate. And Charles Darwin himself was sick at the time, at the time of the debate, he wasn't able to attend, but it turns out he was actually pretty good friends with Samuel Wilberforce, who was kind of attacking his theory of evolution. And, and later on, Samuel Wilberforce would write a review, a critique, of the theory of evolution. And Charles Darwin himself would write that Wilberforce's review is uncommonly clever. It picks out with skill all the most conjectural parts and brings forward well all the difficulties. It quizzes me most splendidly. And Charles Darwin himself was a lot less dogmatic about his own theory than, than many of his scientific colleagues would eventually become. And Samuel Wilberforce 
a man who was known as Soapy Sam, even though he was a theologian, he was a reverend. It, it turns out he's actually pretty well schooled in the sciences and he had some pretty good arguments. And Charles Darwin himself admitted that. And if we look at a couple of historians of science, here's what they have to say about the debate. John Headley Brook wrote, it's a significant fact that the famous clash between Huxley and the bishop was not reported by a single London newspaper at the time. Indeed, there are no official records of the meeting and most of the reports came from Huxley's friends. And you remember that we had mentioned that Thomas Henry Huxley didn't really want to participate in the debate, but he was peer pressured into participating by some of his scientific colleagues who were themselves atheists. And it, were, it was those same scientists that would go out immediately after the debate and tell everybody that they could find that Thomas Henry Huxley had just completely defeated Samuel Wilberforce and that science had had, had its first great defeat of religion in this debate. You see, this is how this debate has come down to us through history. Here's another uh, historian of science, Frank James from the Royal Institute of London wrote, had Wilberforce not been so unpopular in Oxford, he would have carried the day and not Huxley. Um, Samuel Wilberforce was, was really not liked because he was so pretentious. Even the prime minister of England at the time had some nasty things to say about him. So I'd like to spend the next few minutes this evening looking into the sciences to see if there is evidence for a God or not. And I'd like to preface this by, by saying something that I think is pretty important, acknowledging right off the bat that, that I am not a scientist. And so because of that, the fields that we're looking at are, are very complex. And I don't expect you to just rely on, on my word, not, not being an expert in these fields. There, there are many scientists who are, and I want to look at a few of them in this class tonight. In the other classes in this series, we look at quite a few more. But I want to rely on people who are at the cutting edge of their field, whether they're religious, whether they're Christians, whether they're agnostic, whether they're atheists, and hear what they have to say. And so the first scientific field that I'd like to look at is, is the field of genetics. And this will probably look familiar to all of you. I hope it doesn't scare any of you away if you have bad experiences with uh, biology from high school science, but you probably recognize the, the structure on your right, which is the structure of DNA. It's called a double helix structure. What that means is it looks kind of like a ladder that has been twisted and twisted and twisted. And DNA exists inside of all living cells, of course, at, a, at the microscopic, at the subatomic level. And the sides of DNA, the rungs of that ladder, if you will, are made up of sugar phosphates. But the, or, or sorry, the, the sides of it, the rungs of it in between are, are made up of what are called nucleobases. Each rung of that ladder is made up of two different nucleobases, which are joined in the middle with a weak bond, which makes it pretty easy for a strand of DNA to be split right down the middle between these nucleobases. DNA is made up of four different nucleobases, cytosine, guanine, adenine, and thymine. And scientists have given them each letters to make it a little bit easier to understand, C, G, A, and T. Because DNA has been described as being like a computer hard disk. It contains the database of information and the program to produce a specified product. And there's between 10 and 100 trillion cells in the human body. Every single one of those cells contains a database that's larger than the Encyclopedia Britannica. Because what DNA really is, is a language. It's a recipe for life inside of all living things. 
Now, for, for life to continue, DNA has to replicate itself. Cells have to replicate for life to continue. And so a DNA, a strand of DNA, will be split in two and create what's called RNA, a strand of RNA, which you see on the left-hand side. It's a, basically half of a strand of DNA. RNA has three of the four same nucleobases as DNA, and the last one is changed from thymine to uracil. So when a living cell is split in two, the DNA is split in two, and this is a diagram of what that looks like. There's an enzyme that's, enzyme that's called a helicase. It walks down the middle of the strand of DNA like a pair of scissors and cuts it in two. And then with the two half strands that are left, another enzyme called a polymerase walks up those strands and creates the other half of a new strand of DNA. And what's all of this is incredible, but one incredible part of this is that the, the DNA polymerase, as it's walking up the strand to create a new strand of DNA, it's also proofreading the strand because the order of the nucleobases as you go along is incredibly important. That's the recipe. It's just like a language. Those letters C, G, A, and T have to be in the right order. The human genome, for example, is over three and a half billion letters long. And that's why there was the, the human genome project, which was completed in, in 2003 to completely decode the human genome. And that DNA polymerase walks up and down the strand to proofread it. If it finds one that's out of place, it kicks it out, puts a new one right back in. Every once in a while, it misses one. And that's what we call a genetic mutation. But also, sometimes when the DNA is split in two and, and half of that strand of DNA becomes a strand of RNA, it leaves the cell and enters what you see here on your screen, which to us would be incredibly small, but at the subatomic level, it's quite large. It's called a ribosome. And it's basically an information translation machine. And the strand of RNA is fed into the ribosome, which reads every single nu nucleobase as it comes in as a letter. It's reading the language because what it's doing is reading the recipe for protein construction. You see the ribosome is building new proteins. The proteins are the building blocks for all life. And the order of those proteins is very important. To build those proteins, it needs the recipe that comes from the DNA. So here's where it gets really interesting. At a certain point, you cannot break life down any further than DNA and protein. This is sort of the age-old question, which came first, the chicken or the egg? So for an atheist that doesn't believe in God, they probably believe in some version of the Big Bang combined with the theory of evolution. And they believe that, that life emerged through a series of random chaotic processes. Every one of those steps, extremely simple steps, but billions and billions of steps for life to eventually arise. The problem with that thinking, when we look at this level in the field of genetics, is that you get to a point of the term that we would use is called irreducible complexity. There comes a point where you have these two elements that are both by themselves incredibly complex and you cannot break them down any further because to create proteins, you have to have DNA. For, but for DNA to exist, you have to also first have proteins. The question is which came first, the proteins or the DNA? You had to have both put together which suggests very strongly that there must have been a chemist involved for life to emerge. There has to have been a mind behind it all. And before the advent of the new atheists, one of the most famous atheists in the world 
was a man named Anthony Flew. And in 2004, he changed his mind. And this was, he was an old man at the time, and he decided he was no longer an atheist. He believed in God. And it was, it was no accident that it happened in 2004, because in 2003, the Human Genome Project was completed. And the man who was the leader, the head of the Human Genome Project, is a, a man, a geneticist named Francis Collins. And at the public announcement of the completion of the Human Genome Project, this is what he said. He said, it is humbling for me and awe-inspiring to realize that we have caught the first glimpse of our own instruction book, previously known only to God. Because Francis Collins is and was a Christian, not in spite of his scientific work, but because of it. Because of everything that he saw being on the cutting edge of the field of genetics, he believed that there must be a God because he was deciphering the recipe, the instruction book for human life. And so the very next year in 2004, the atheist Anthony Flew announced to the world that he was no longer an atheist. He'd spent his entire career advocating for atheism. And in 2004, in an interview with ABC News, he said, my whole life has been guided by the principle of Plato's Socrates, follow the evidence wherever it leads. And I love that quote, follow the evidence wherever it leads, because if, if we really care about truth, then we really care about evidence, and we're going to be willing to follow that evidence to its very end, to whatever, whatever logical conclusion that leads to. And for Anthony Flew, it was an inescapable conclusion that we must have been created, that there must be a mind behind it all. And he explains his reasoning for changing his mind in another interview that same year in a symposium in 2004. And this is what he said. He said, what I think the DNA material has done is show that intelligence must have been involved in getting these extraordinarily diverse elements together. The enormous complexity by which the results were achieved looked to me like the work of intelligence. Now, to be fair to you, to, to have full transparency, Anthony Flew did not become religious. He did not become a Christian. He became what we described earlier. He became a deist which is somebody who believes in a creator, but they don't believe any, in any specific revelation of that creator. They don't believe that, that God spoke to humankind. He died in the year 2010, but he died believing in a God because of the evidence that he saw within the field of genetics. And, and in 2004, when he changed his mind, many prominent atheists at the time spoke up. They were not happy about it. People like Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens said, it's a shame that this once great mind has gone senile and soft. But you can go on YouTube and watch interviews with Anthony Flew at this time in 2004, and you'll find if you listen to him that he is intelligent and articulate and anything but senile. Now, I want to shift gears here and go into a different field of the sciences. I, I want to look in physics but on the grand scale, I want to look at the, the universe. I want to look at astronomy. And the equation that you see on the screen now is one of Einstein's field equations. And I cannot begin to explain it to you, but I can tell you that right in the middle is what's known as the cosmological constant. This is represented by, by the Greek symbol lambda. It represents the energy density of the vacuum of space. And 
1929, when Einstein came up with this equation, he believed, and the rest of the scientific world believed, that the entire universe was static, which means it's not moving. It stays the same shape. Well, Einstein would later refer to this as his single greatest blunder, because we discovered that the universe is not static. It's actually expanding. And in the 1990s, we discovered that not only is the universe expanding, it's actually accelerating in, ex in its expansion. It's expanding at an ever more rapid rate, which means that this number in the middle of Einstein's field, one of Einstein's field equations is not zero. You see, Einstein originally believed this number was zero. If the universe is static, this number would be zero. But now that we know that the universe is expanding and it's accelerating in its, in its expansion, it means that this number is not zero. Scientists don't know exactly what number it is, but they, they theorize that it looks something like this. 10 to the power of negative 120, which is an infinitesimally small number. And what we do know about the cosmological constant if, is that if it was any different from what it is, our universe would not look like our universe. If it was just a little bit smaller, our universe would fly apart. And if it was just a little bit larger, our universe would collapse in on itself. In both cases, life would not be possible. And yet we have this incredibly small, extremely precise number at the heart of the laws of the universe. And we wonder why. This is what scientists refer to as the fine-tuning of the universe. And there's a really interesting documentary. It's called Particle Fever. It's all about the discovery of what's known as the Higgs boson. If you haven't heard about that, I'll explain it to you in just a minute. The Higgs boson was, was theorized in the 1960s and, and finally discovered in the year 2012. And the documentary Particle Fever features a lot of scientists that were working on the discovery of the Higgs boson. And one of them was a, a scientist named Nima Arkani Hamed, which is uh, one of the, the brightest young minds in physics today. And in the documentary, he talks about the cosmological constant. He's, this is what he says. The cosmological constant needs to have an extremely precise value. And if the value is different, even by a tiny bit, it would radically change what the world looks like around us. If you saw a situation where a parameter has a very dangerous value, where if you change it a little bit, the world would change radically and we'd be dead, you would wonder where that came from. How is that possible? So just on the face of it, you would look at the situation and say, wow, someone really cared to put this parameter at just the right value so that we get to be here and that it's a pleasant universe. This is the sort of thing that really keeps you up at night. Now, I really wanted to know about Nima Arkani Hamed. I wanted, to, I wanted to know if he was religious, if he was an atheist, if he was agnostic. I, I couldn't find out. That information is just not available. But here's one of the brightest young minds in physics today saying that things like this, the cosmological constant and the fine-tuning of the universe, sometimes cause him to be sleepless at night because it just seems impossible that something like this should be so. And yet all around us, when we look at the laws that govern our world and our universe, we find that nature has been fine-tuned so that life can exist. And the more that we see that, 
the greater and greater the odds become that there must be a mind, there must have been a mind behind it all. And the possibility that all of this happened through a series of random chaotic steps, that possibility shrinks further and further and further. Now there's a, there's a mindset that religious people, that we, people like us can fall into, which is a little bit dangerous, which is why I wanna to talk to you about it for a minute here. And the, the term to describe this mindset is called God of the gaps. So you can fall into the trap of thinking that anything that God has done will be impossible for us to comprehend, that we will not be able to explain it because God is so much more complex and powerful than we are that if God has done it, we won't be able to explain it. The problem with thinking that way is that things that we might have thought of as miraculous a hundred years ago, scientists can explain today. They've discovered how things work. They can explain the mechanics of it today. And so if your God exists only in the gaps of human understanding, that means that the God that you believe in is shrinking as scientific understanding grows. And you see the problem. And we have to understand that God is the God of the whole show. And just because we might be able to explain some of what he's done does not take away from the, the very strong possibility that there is a God behind it all. The odds that there is a God, that there's a creator behind everything, are so much greater than the odds that there is no God. The evidence is, in a word, overwhelming. And just like that, in that exercise, that mental exercise we went through, it would be ridiculous for those aboriginals to, after they could explain the mechanics of how a truck works, postulate that that truck then had no designer because they can explain how it works. It's ridiculous for us today or for atheists today to think that just because we might be, be able to explain how the universe works, how our world works, that there's not a mind behind it all. Because there almost certainly is. The odds are overwhelmingly in favor of a creator God. But sometimes within the fields of science, scientists imagine that we're about to close the door on a subject. And we'll know everything there is to know about that subject. And the discovery of the Higgs boson is an example of that. So I mentioned this a, a few minutes ago. The Higgs boson is... A was a, a theor theoretical particle. You see, in space, things move more slowly than scientists think they should. And for a long time, they didn't know why that was. Think of, think of it as like there must be an invisible field that's kind of like molasses that slows everything down in space. But we couldn't explain it. And in the 1960s, a scientist named Peter Higgs, along with some other scientists, theorized that there must be this field. And if there is this field, the particle that created it would look a little bit like this. That particle became known as the Higgs boson. This is what it would look like. But for decades, we did not have the technology to see that particle, to actually discover it until, until the year 2012. And for, for more than a decade, scientists built a machine just outside Geneva, Switzerland, called the Large Hadron Collider. It's a 27-kilometer-long loop. And they use it to speed particles up almost to the speed of light and then crash them into each other. And then they have very precise cameras that take pictures of the resulting explosion at a subatomic level. 
And it was finally completed, the Large Hadron Collider, in 2010, but it had to be calibrated for two years. And finally, in 2010, the big test that all scientists wanted to see was the test that was meant to discover the Higgs boson. And around the world, and sometimes in the middle of the night, depending on what time zone they were in, scientists sat in rooms watching TVs, waiting for the publication of the results of whether or not this particle would be discovered. And, it, and incredibly, it was. The Higgs boson was discovered. And a lot was riding on, if it was discovered, a lot was riding on the mass of this particle. You see, if it had a mass of about 115, what we call giga electron volts, that would go a really long way to prove a whole body of scientific theory called supersymmetry, which basically says that every particle in the universe has a corresponding particle. We just haven't discovered all of the particles that are out there yet. But if the mass of the Higgs boson was more like 140 giga electron volts, it would then really give a lot of credence to the body of what we call multiverse theories, which suggests that there are an infinite number of other universes out there, and we just happen to be in one that is capable of supporting life. And so scientists were waiting with bated breath to see, first, if they would discover the Higgs boson, and secondly, what the mass would be. And it was discovered, and the mass of the Higgs boson was neither of those two numbers. In fact, it was right in the middle, 125 giga electron volts. And at the end of that documentary I told you about, Particle Fever, one of the scientists that's featured is driving home in the middle of the night, having just found out about the discovery of the Higgs boson and its mass. And this is what he has to say. He says, if this is true, the Higgs is about 125 GeV. And that means that almost all of my models are ruled out, which is pretty cool. Supersymmetry could still be true, but it would have to be a very strange version of the theory. If it's the multiverse, well, other universes would be amazing, of course, but it would also mean that no other new particles would be discovered. So anyway, we have something to do. And scientists can be pretty weird sometimes. He was not at all upset that all of his theories had to be thrown out the window. He was excited that, that they had to rewrite the book and this is a perfect example of a case where scientists realize how little they know about a subject. And it's at times like these that we realize how incredible and collect, uh, complex our universe is, which shows us just how incredible and powerful our God is. And we've spent some time tonight looking mostly in science for evidence for the existence of God. And I hope you with, will agree with me that just the little bit of evidence that we've looked at, because we've just scratched the surface, is extremely compelling evidence for belief in a God. And I really do believe this is the first great question for anybody who is seeking truth. The first question they have to ask and answer is, is there a God? But that's only the first question. And having answered that question, of course, then the, the next question is, if we do believe there's a God, then, then has he spoken to us? Does he have a purpose with us? Why did he create this earth? And it was not our purpose tonight to ask that question, but it is such an important one. And I think it's the next step that follows after you answer the question, is there a God? Because you'd want to answer the question, is this book that we have in front of us really his word? And so I want to leave you with uh, another video clip, and then we'll close for our, our class this evening. And and this last clip is from a second debate that took place between the same two men that we watched debate at the beginning of this class. 
Richard Dawkins and John Lennox. And the second debate between these two men took place in 2008 in Oxford's Museum of Natural History, which is the very same place where in 1860, Samuel Wilberforce and Thomas Henry Huxley debate, debated the merits of the theory of evolution. I'm gonna play this clip for you, which is just a, a few minutes long. And I've spliced a few parts of this debate together because I wanted to keep the theme of one part of the conversation together and encourage you, if you're interested in it, go watch the whole debate because it's fascinating. But my, my abilities to, to edit video are not great. So there's, there's one part where I've spliced together where somebody says, well, of course it is. Um, that is not referring to what was just said. That's just where I've spliced two parts together. And it, it'll make more sense for you knowing that going in. So here it is. There is reading your book, The God Delusion. You say that it's under scholarly dispute among historians that Jesus actually existed. Now, I checked with the ancient historians. That is not so. And it disturbed me. History is not natural science. But what I don't understand is this, why you would write something like that. I don't think it's a very important question uh, whether Jesus existed. There are some historians, most historians think he did. Some They certainly do. I couldn't um, find an ancient historian that didn't. Uh, well, there are one or two, but I don't really care, actually, because it, uh, precisely because it's petty. Well, but the basic is. question is, is it true or not? Yeah, and that is the basic question. It is completely irrelevant. If it's comforting, if it gives you hope, if it gives you happiness, that has nothing to do with whether it's true. That I agree with entirely. So, so we need to know uh, whether it's true. Yes. Now, um, when you look at history, and, and let's let's leave aside, maybe I, I, I alluded to the possibility that some historians think Jesus never exists. I take that back. Jesus existed. However, if you're going to say that Jesus was born of a virgin, that Jesus walked on water, that he turned water into wine, that is palpably anti-scientific. There is no evidence for that. But, so when you say it's anti-scientific, I think it's not anti-scientific. What I mean by that is that if and when doing science, we constantly have to keep in mind that at any moment, there might be a little magic trick slipped in that would completely nullify the whole enterprise of science. Oh, I agree with that. But well, you see, that's what you're is, allowing. No, no, I'm not allowing that at all, because in order to recognize what the New Testament calls miracle, a special act of God, you must be living in a universe that has regularities and that we recognize them. I agree with you entirely. Otherwise, you wouldn't notice the miracles. That's yeah. exactly true. Yeah. You wouldn't recognize if dead people were popping up all over the place. You wouldn't think it was very special. But the fact is you need two things, not one. You've got to have regularities, which we call the laws of nature, although they're not causes. They're, in a sense, descriptions that we can use. You also need to be able to recognize those so that, for example, when um, Joseph discovered that his uh, wife-to-be, Mary, was pregnant, he simply didn't believe her story. He was going to divorce her. He knew exactly where babies came from. He knew the regularity. It took very special convincing for him to realize that something extremely special had happened. But science cannot stop that. The question is, of course, did such a thing ever happen? And the central focus in the New Testament is not that, which is not so readily accessible to evidence, the virgin conception, but the resurrection of Christ. 
And ancient historians, and this has fascinated me recently going over it, ancient historians whose discipline is very venerable, and I'm not talking about Christian ancient historians, ancient historians, many of them, even at the skeptical end of the spectrum, say that the evidence for the resurrection of Christ is very powerful. The explosion of the Christian church from a non-proselytizing group of Jews in the first century, the empty tomb and all the rest of it, has even led Giza Vermesh, who's one of the most distinguished ancient historians in Oxford, to, to say, yes, this tomb was empty, and hallucinations of this kind of explanation do not wash. So, we have to ask ourselves, are we prepared to believe in historical testimony or not? Now, you'll remember that in Romans chapter 1 and verse 20, the Apostle Paul said that the invisible attributes of God can be seen in the things that he's created. And that is absolutely true. And God has given us not only the world around us, not only the universe, which we can look at in greater and greater in de detail as our knowledge expands to show that he exists, but he's given us the evidence of history. And all of the Christian faith hinges on one claim of a historical fact, that at a point in time, a man was raised from the dead. And while it's not the subject of our class tonight, there is powerful evidence to show that that, that really did happen. Indeed, there are no ancient historians that suggest otherwise, though there are many ancient historians who would have loved to have done so at the time. And when we look at the evidence that God has given us in the world that he has created and placed us in, and then we look at the evidence in his revelation to us in his word, I think we can have no doubt that we have a creator who's so much more complex and powerful than we are, and yet incredibly, he cares about us he has a purpose for us, and he expects us to help bring about that purpose on this earth. And when you believe all of that to be true, when you look at all of the evidence, because we do not have blind faith, our faith is based upon the onslaught of evidence that we continue to discover that shows that God exists and that the Bible is his word. When you see all of that, then it is your responsibility as it is mine to integrate the words of this book into our lives, to live as Jesus did and to build for the kingdom when our Lord comes back and sits on his throne ruling the earth.